Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. So keep your eyes closed, everyone. Mind your own business now. Okay, don't be a, don't be a Mr. Snoopy. Alright? Okay, keep your eyes closed. And raise your hands. If you're sick physically today and it's kind of dragging you down, keep your hands up. If you're tired, just worn out, didn't get enough sleep, keep your hands up. If you came to church angry or emotionally drained and you're just not feeling it, and just keep your hands up the whole time you're doing this, okay? If you're feeling far from God or if you're weighed down under the heaviness of sins you've committed, just raise your hands. Why don't you put your hands down and let me pray for us. Lord, so many have come this morning with hearts that are not really ready to receive that good seed of your word. And Father, we confess that that's the case a lot of the time for us. And we ask now, we reach out to you for your help. For Holy Spirit, you are like a great plow that turns over the soil that's hardened in our hearts. And I believe, Lord, that through your word today, you want to give us hope and encouragement, and you want to do something about the burdens that we've carried into this place. And so we pray that you would come now and intervene in the lives of those who are heavy and troubled and allow their burdens to be lifted so that they can hear your word and find in that word great hope and strength and power for living. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 and just kind of keep your place there. Um, And for the guys in the back room, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 14 in the ESV. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14 in the ESV. So it's January 6, 2008. It's our first Sunday of the new year. I'm just wondering, how are you doing on some of those resolutions so far? We've had a whole six days to stick at it. Any of you already blow your streak going to the gym or having quiet time or being kind to your spouse or any of those other things? Anybody already blow it? Just don't want to admit it. I totally blew it. I'm a failure. My chief practical resolution for 2008 was to become a normal human being as regards to sleep. I pledged along with my wife that I would get to bed before midnight and arise by six every single day. It's been six days and so far I'm one for six. Part of the problem is I went to the oil conference where sleep is some legend we heard about once, but I guess it's just not very important because we started our pastor's fellowship at one in the morning with pizza and Chinese food, and it was a terrible idea, if you ask me. And then there's always a 6 a.m. prayer meeting. So I did okay waking up, you know what I'm saying? But the getting to bed part's been a little difficult. And so I look at what I set out to do. I look at how many days I've had to do it and how many days I had, and I'm not feeling great about myself. And that's not to mention some of the other more private resolutions I've made where I also have to admit to you I'm not batting a thousand. Now, based on your responses, I'm feeling really low about myself this morning because you guys are all doing great and you have perfect lives and you're in excellent, victorious situations and I'm the big loser at the mic. 
Here's the thing. Goals can be wonderful things, but they can also be really frustrating things. Because once you set a goal, you have a concrete measure of your failure as well as your success. And so the way that you manage goals, the way that God leads you to actually walk through them, is a huge part of how you're going to end up feeling in your experience of life. You know, if you've been to Harvest for a while, you'll know that we call ourselves, or at least we like to think of ourselves, as a church of next steps. And that's a very meaningful thing. It speaks to the emphasis we place on movement versus stagnancy in life, in all areas of life, but especially in your journey of discipleship in following Christ. That a lot of people set up for just sitting where they are, and nothing ever seems to happen, and they grow to a point where they're okay with that. And at Harvest, one of the lines we've drawn in the sand is, we're never going to be okay with that. It might be the, the truth for us at this moment in our lives, but we'll never redefine things so that that's acceptable. Some people are doing that right now. I know it because I follow your lives. I love you very much. And as we talk, I can sense right away, you completely settled in certain areas of your life. For some of you in your spiritual life, you've decided this is about where it is, and you're actually becoming okay with that. And what we mean by being the church of next steps is that we never settle there. That we value constantly staying on the move. And for some, for some points in our lives, we're not going to be able to make a huge step. We're going to be able to only make the tiniest little bit of forward movement. Maybe you're supposed to forgive someone, but your next step is simply you want to look at them without picturing murder. That's a big step for you. It may seem like a little step. Just look at them, not wanting to kill them. But that's your next step. The whole point is, instead of just staying where you are, do something to stay on the move. That is what we value at our church. This is not the first time I'm going to speak on the subject, but it's the first Sunday of the year. And because it's such a core value for us, I think it bears repeating. Now, I'm not going to preach a sermon I've preached before, but the theme needs to be reinforced in our congregation. That if you've settled anywhere, that's not where God wants you. That the Christian journey is about moving and moving and never becoming stagnant. <clears throat> Let's look at our passage for this morning. It's Philippians 3. We're going to focus on verses 12 to 14, but we're going to interact with a few of the verses upstream of that as well. <clears throat> By the way, please pray for me. My eyes are getting worse. My, I need bifocals, I'm told, but... It's getting so bad, I might actually have to go out and buy bifocals and make it official that I'm an aging person. So you'll see me doing this a lot more until I go out and get those glasses. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14. This is the word of God. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Can you imagine a race that has no course at all? A race where there's a starting point and everyone just start running and everyone takes off in all different directions. And the point is to just run and run and run with no finish line. No trail markers, nothing at all. What would it be like to run in a race like that? I don't know about you, but I would hate it. Because there's no sense of direction. 
There's no way of knowing how I'm doing, never mind relative to the other runners. I don't even know if I'm making it or if I'm doing well, what's going on. It's just running for running's sake. And I know that sounds terribly absurd, but I think that's the way a lot of people are living their life of discipleship with Jesus Christ. And when they hear a sermon, what they hear is keep trying harder, but they're not entirely sure what direction we're supposed to be trying harder. And if you've ever felt like what Christianity's message is, is just keep straining, but you have no idea where we're supposed to aim that, well, that's a pretty frustrating way to live. When you read Paul's testimony in his letter to the Philippian church in chapter 3, what you read is a testimony of a man who is saying that he's not, by any stretch of the imagination, a finished product. He's very humble. He's very real about where he is, but he's not confused about his direction. That's the one thing he is crystal clear on. You know, when you read, about, read this passage, verse 12, you read this, this sense of like this great prize he's got ahead of him. Not that I've already obtained this or have already made, been made perfect, which is another way of saying finished or complete. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider what I've, that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. And listen, I strain forward to what lies ahead. In other words, Paul does not see Christianity as an exercise in just running hard, but running towards something concrete. He's not frustrated, even though he's not finished, because he sees the trajectory and he's making daily progress towards a goal or a prize that has become an obsession for him. Something that draws him forward and will not let him go. You know, a commitment to next steps is only a worthwhile and good thing if you know in which direction those next steps are actually taking you. If you ever hear somebody say, Hey, buddy, I am a man on the move. I'm a girl on the go. Well, so outdated. Shows you I'm 40 years old. <clears throat> if you hear someone say stuff like that, and they give this aura of being in motion, on the go, the most important question you can ask them is, Hey, cool. Where are you going? There are some people who by a casual observation, everyone in the room would agree, man, they're on the move. But the real question of life is not whether you're moving or not, but where that movement is actually taking you. Some of you are frustrated by where you've ended up, but the truth is that the way you've committed yourself to moving, you have had no choice but to end up in this place. If you keep taking the wrong trains, you'll never get to where you want to go. That's the whole point. And I'm not trying to preach some, some kind of vague, uh, positive, Tony Robbins-style message. What I'm saying is there is a destination for the Christian journey. You know what that, Christian, that, that destination is? What Paul's single-minded passion is, and it's meant to be ours as well. What we discover is that for Paul, the destination is Christ. Take a look at verse 7 in that chapter. <clears throat> Listen to what Paul says in his testimony. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that what? 
that I may gain Christ. <clears throat> if you read what Paul's just said, here's what he's really saying in simpler language. I met Jesus one day, and the entire grading scale for life got switched on me. You know what a grading scale is, right? Do you remember the days, long, long time ago, when things like letter grades and GPAs mattered to you? Now, if you're a student at home on break, forgive me, I know it still matters to you. But I just wonder, how many of you are no longer students? The days of GPAs mattering are far behind you. That's right. Chances are most of you are living in the working world and you live in a world of deliverables and deadlines and projects and, and you're building careers and things like grades just don't seem to matter anymore. They once were so all-important, but who really cares about your GPA anymore? Today, it probably wouldn't be an exaggeration to suggest that your work results in millions of dollars or human lives or people's health or the futures of young children, the next generation, hanging in the balance. That's huge. How many of you walk into a cocktail party and your first opening line is, <laughs> well, I was like a 4.15 GPA in college. Do you expect that to get you somewhere with the ladies or make people give you their seat at the table or something? That's not a measure that is meaningful anymore for the majority of the people in this room. <clears throat> That's not to say it's never been important. It once used to be everything. Ask any student, what's your goal in life right now? And most will say, beyond some of the more crass things, really my goal is to get good grades. The GPA is their future. And there was a time in our lives when we operated under a grading scale that seemed to be the most important measure of us as people that we could imagine. But what Paul is saying is, then he met Jesus, and none of that seemed to matter anymore. The old ways that he used to grade life, his own life, and other people's lives, started to look so absurd. Here was his final statement. I looked at the way I used to think about the value of life and the value of people, and it was so stupid, I considered it all rubbish. Do you know that that's a very polite English translation for the Greek word skubalon? It sounds the way it means, scubalon. You know, go pick up your scubalon from the floor. It means dung, caca, doo-doo, feces. It is excrement. It is so far from valuable that Paul could think of no stronger word. He says, you know what? I used to think this was everything. That if you won on this scale, you won everything. And now I look at it, and it seems so grotesquely absurd compared to this new measuring scale I've got, that what once was valuable, once was everything to me, is dung. It's like nothing. You know, Paul opens up in the beginning part of this chapter, revealing his own transcript. And, that, and what, what's revealed is that according to the old grading scale, he had a fair shot of being valedictorian of the planet. He was doing really good. He was like a 4.99 on a 5 scale. Some of you go to U of I, it's a 5.0 grading scale when I was there anyway. And so I used to always tell people, oh, I've got like a 4 point something. And they're like, dude, you're an A plus, you know. It's actually a B, but, you know, you know the, the whole point is you, 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 he was doing very well by that old standard. 
He was very confident in himself. And then he met Jesus and the rug got swept out from under him because one day he was on top of the world and the next day he saw his worth for what it really was and he was humbled and everything changed and he was back to freshman year, back to 0.0 and he was beginning to understand that life is to be measured a whole different way. That is at least in part what Paul has in mind when he says, there is a prize I'm after now and it's not the old prize I was after. I'm not concerned about winning that game anymore because it's a game that really never mattered. I've got a whole different game that I'm engaged in and I intend to play this one as if to win. There's a further revelation that we find as we read read on in Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 8 through verse 11. And listen to where I place the emphasis because here's what he's saying about the prize. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you know what I see in those words? I see that for Paul and rightly so for all of us, the proper goal or prize of the Christian life is not a principle or a place. It is a person. The goal of the Christian journey is not to get to heaven or to become a certain kind of person. It is not a cause. It is not a character. It is a Christ. There is no other compelling thing that draws us forward in being Christians than that what we want more than anything is to know Jesus Christ. It exhausts me because I sometimes hear or encounter Christian leaders who have framed Christian life as though the only thing it's about is achieving great things for God. And they become God's pack mules and workhorses and slaves and they are tirelessly marching forward, working and working and working. But I do not discern underneath all that work that what makes their heart beat is that they love this Jesus and so badly want to know Him. They have, they have become content to simply be his employees and not his lovers, his dear children, the ones who chase after his heart with everything they've got. And for some of you who've been in the church a long time, this is exactly why you're disenchanted with the faith. Because for too long it's been about becoming a certain kind of person or making sure you're still going to get to heaven. And you've forgotten that the only lasting, enduring motivation for being a Christian is that Jesus Christ wants to know you more and He wants you to know Him more. There is nothing else that ultimately matters above that. It is the only measure, the only category by which God looks at the earth. Do you think that when God looks at this room, He sees IQs and diplomas and physical attractiveness, and net worths and stock portfolios, do you think the things that distinguish you from me on a human level is what God is caught up in looking at when He sees us? Do you think that is His measuring scale? My goodness, look at Dave. 
He's 40 years old and his house is only worth a couple hundred grand. And look at that guy, how much he's... Do you really think that that's the way God filters humanity? Absolutely not. When God looks at this room right at this moment, and he is doing that, his heart is gripped by only one spectrum of measure. And that is whether you are coming to really know and love him more or you don't. That's all that really matters in the end. I think it's a profound revelation that what Paul says he's straining after is not the goal of becoming a perfect human being, but of knowing Jesus Christ. You want to know what Paul's really talking about? Because when I talk theologically, I'm I'm not sure that we're always connecting. Let me give you a real earthy example of what Paul's trying to say here. You want to know Paul's heart? Watch a young man who's fallen in love with a young lady. Okay? And you will have a perfect explanation for what makes the Christian life tick. When you see a young man who has fallen in love with a young lady, what you're seeing is a man who has just become completely stupid. Right? Completely stupid. Men in love become complete idiots. Don't they? Nothing else matters. They are gripped by one single-minded goal, and that is what, guys? Tell me. To get the girl. Right. To get the girl. It doesn't matter if they go broke. It doesn't matter if they flunk out of school. It will matter later when she says, you're kind of cute, but man, you have no future. You know, but they don't care what happens to them. They will do anything to get the girl. <clears throat> they stop looking at things like price tags and watches and odometers. You know, there used to be time when that stuff mattered, but man, I can't tell you how many long conversations I had with Jeannie in our courtship where I didn't necessarily want to still be talking, but I never looked at my watch because enduring this conversation was worth it if only I could get the girl. There was stuff I had to put on credit cards because I was broke, but man, if I could make her happy, it didn't matter. That's stupid, and Crown would definitely be ashamed of me if I said that thing now, but You know, when you're a young man in love, you don't sit there and go, well, honey, I was going to get you this, but you just weren't worth $39.95 just yet. I'm saving up money. And you don't say stuff like that. You just go, don't ask me how I got it, girl. Just know you're worth it. All right. (laughs) And that's what we do. This is the heart that drives a lover forward. By any means possible, you want to go further in this relationship. There's nothing else that measures value for you anymore. Everything is graded on one scale. And that's a picture of what Paul is describing here. Is that the way you feel about Christianity? That the overarching driving goal is to know Jesus. Because if it isn't, then I guarantee you, you will burn out. There's no way to sustain a lifelong journey of discipleship if your goal is anything other than to know and to love Jesus Christ. I think Christianity is a lot less like an explorer setting out to conquer new lands on a compass heading, and it's a lot more like a moth who keeps flying to the bug zapper and has no idea why. He just can't stop. That is the way our hearts are drawn to Jesus if we see him for what he's really worth. I've got to make a second revelation here that I think Paul makes in his testimony. He describes this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ as being something so worthwhile that by any means possible, he'll go after it. Whether it is by the road of resurrection power, what does that mean? 
Those great moments where out of the ashes of failure, God renews our lives and He gives us victory when we thought we were sunk. Those are great moments that bring us closer to God. But also, whether it's by sharing in His sufferings or His death. Meaning for Paul, it doesn't matter if he gets closer to God by the good times or the bad times. Ultimately, the only thing that matters is that we get closer. Marriage is a lot like that, isn't it? I mean, I love my honeymoon. That's the resurrection power of marriage. Those, especially in the honeymoon. Do you remember the wedding night? Those of you who are married. How great that was to have all the guests on. I don't want to get too graphic, but you know that that's one of those great moments in marriage that just surges forward. And you say, if this is my future, dynamite. <laughs> but you know what else? There are those hard moments when money gets tight. You get into a little fight. Or maybe those long nights in a hospital room where she's going, and you're about to push a baby out, and you're standing there like, I'm not having any fun right now. This is stressful. It's awful. I can't believe I have to go through this together with you. But you get through that night, and there comes this beautiful baby who becomes a lifelong blessing for you most of the time. That's life. Whether by the hard days or the easy days. You stick together. And the important thing is, you're getting closer. That is the picture of Christianity that is, I think, so compelling and so missing for too many in the church. This is what we're after. I don't care if the good times or the bad times come. The only thing that matters, it's a fair transaction if at the end of it, I'm one step closer to Jesus Christ. I love the, the, the way that Paul ends verse 12. Listen to these words. I press on to make it, meaning this prize of knowing Jesus, I press on to make that my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What he's really saying is that as Christians, we're not trying to jump up to grasp hold of a God who remains out of reach, tantalizing and teasing us. But we reach up to grab hold of a God who we will find is already reached down to grab hold of us. Here's the picture that I have in mind. I've got a vivid imagination. And I think this word picture may explain it better than other ways. I picture Jesus reaching over a cliff. I've been rock climbing or something and my, my belaying line slit, snapped or something. And here's Jesus like in cliffhanger holding on to my hand. And so I, you, can you picture it with me now? I'm dangling thousands of feet. I'm going to drop to my death. And he's got me and I'm holding on with this hand. And here in my other hand, my free hand, is a satchel filled with all my treasures. That bottle of water, the first take kit, all the stuff I thought was going to give me security and make me well. And I'm hanging on to it and it's heavy and I'm dangling and I feel my fingers and I say, you know what? I used to think this was my life, my salvation, my every treasure. But right now all it's doing is pulling me down with gravity and it's weighing me down. And so here's what we're saying. This is what Paul is talking about. I would gladly exchange what's in this hand for a firmer grasp on the hand that's holding me. And that's what he says. So I willingly let this go because it's all, it used to be great, but it's nothing but rubbish now. Who's going to hang on to a satchel of dung when it's weighing him down? And so he lets it go. Good riddance. And with that free hand, what does he do? He's not grabbing on to save himself. He's saying, I'm grabbing on tighter to the, the hand that has already been holding me. That's the only thing really worth grasping onto. And you know why that's so important? Because if you could picture it, imagine that while I'm hanging onto that hand, 
that on the edges of this cliff are all these other vines hanging on. And I look at those vines and I think, maybe if I let go of the hand and grab onto one of these vines, I could kind of hoist myself up, and instead of being rescued and owing this guy my life, I could say, I rescued myself. That's a great temptation for most of us. I don't want to hang on to this hand and trust Jesus. I'd rather grab onto the vine of good works or sacrifice or character, and I like to pull myself up off that, that edge and onto the safety of the land. That's a terrible temptation. And that is why what Paul is speaking about is the language of exchange. I'm letting go of that not to grab on and move forward and strain to save myself, but to grip onto the only hand that can save me. Because the temptation is to try to save myself, justify myself, find my goodness in myself are so prevalent, they're so great. Look at what verse 9 says. I want to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God by His grace. Do you see that? That's what straining in the Christian life is all about. It's not about trying harder because you have to become a better person or a better Christian, whatever that means. It's about straining to hang more on to faith and dependence on Jesus Christ as the only one who makes us righteous. That's why we do it all. That's why we do everything we do as Christians. We're hanging more tightly onto Him and not choosing to grab onto those tempting vines that are dangling all around us, promising our salvation. And so we finally come to the verse that is most familiar to us. That He strains and He presses forward, forgetting what lies behind and moving forward to what lies ahead. This is the picture then of the church of next steps. That we have our prize very clearly in mind. And we resist the temptation to hang on to all the other things that offer us salvation. And with our free hands, we grasp firmly onto the one hand that can save us. And we strain and we pull ahead, not to pull ourselves up, but to tighten our grasp on Him. Do you see that? That is what Christian life is ultimately all about. We are all works in progress. None of us is going to be perfect or finished on this side of heaven. But the one thing Paul says he does is he puts the past behind him and he looks ahead to what lies ahead. You know, the past can be a good teacher, but a lot of the times it could be one of the greatest enemies of your future. And I think it's important for us to take Paul's advice and follow his example. He says, I just forget what lies behind. You know, biblical forgetting is not somehow unknowing something. Biblical forgetting is choosing no longer to remember. He says, there's stuff in my past I would love to leave behind me. You think Paul didn't know what he was talking about? He used to kill Christians in this zealousness for God. He was putting Christians to death. Do you not think the faces of those he hunted down, he fingered in the middle of the night to the secret police who knocked down those doors and took those people off to be slaughtered? Do you not think those faces haunted Paul in his night, in, in, in his sleep, in his dreams? He saw them. There was so much he'd done that he wished he could leave behind in the past. And what Paul says is, by the grace of God, so long as I hang on to the hand that's holding me and forget about everything else, I will be able to forget what's behind and move forward to what lies behind, ahead of me. That's the great promise of the gospel. That is what enables us to take on a motto like the church of next steps. 
You can take another step because Jesus erases the past for you. You know, what are some of the things that will weigh you down in your past? Some of them are the great sins you've committed, the failures that create heavy baggage around your neck. Other times it's the pains, the wounds of things people did to you. Other times it's the old temptations, the lure. You know what I'm talking about. The siren's call of your old way of living and how much you miss some of those things you used to do. For others, it's, it's that, that prideful memory of the great things you've done successfully in the past. The past calls out to you and says, remember who you are. And, and here's what, what Paul says, forget all of that. The only thing that matters is that standing in front of me is another step I can take to know Jesus Christ a little bit more. The past is nothing compared to what lies ahead. And this is what I will strain after. You know, why am I saying all this to you this morning? You might be asking that same question. When, when will he shut up? When will this be over? You know why I'm saying all this to you? Because every year, we try to get a new beginning, don't we? We try to get a fresh start in our marriages, in our careers, in our physical bodies, even in our spiritual journeys. But I think the reason that so often we fail to succeed is because we try to pick ourselves up by the bootstraps without first understanding where God is trying to take us. You know, you can't make 80 goals and keep all 80 of them. I bet if some of you could show us your resolution list, it would make all of us laugh. It's so unrealistically complex and long and comprehensive. It's like a lifetime's worth of transformation you're attempting in one year. I would wager this, that this year, 2008, you can really only manage... One clear, new, great transformation in your life. And whatever that will be, I hope that it will take you in the direction of knowing Christ more. If your greatest ambitions or goals for this year are in the arena of your career, you'll probably reach it, but you'll find at the end that it wasn't really what your heart was longing for. I want to challenge you this morning that as you set your direction for the new year and think about what your next steps are, that they will not just be about your physical fitness, your waistline, your your pocketbook, about your career, your job description. Those things matter. But I would ask you, as you set goals for 2008, think earnestly about what Christ has made possible for you and what he is calling you into. and, And see along with Paul that there's a whole new grading scale for your life. That the stuff that once mattered so much and made you feel like you were successful don't really matter that much in this new life that God is calling you into. There's a whole new way of living. And I want to challenge you to reconsider how you've been formulating your resolutions and goals for this year. And I would like it if all of us as a church could set one goal firmly in our hearts. And that is that this year, No matter what road I travel, I will strain after one thing, and that is to know Christ and gain Him and to be found in Him. I'm not interested if you become a more self-controlled person or a bigger Bible expert or all of those things. Those things are simply the surface descriptions of a life that is in love with and enthralled with Jesus Christ and is inexorably, irrepressibly moving forward towards a greater relationship with him. That's all that matters. That is what matters most. You know, preparing this message, 
has really scrambled with my life a little bit because I realized how shallow and unimportant some of my biggest aspirations were for 2008. I've got a lot of programs that I want to see happen at our church, and I've got all these big, big ideas. But really, for me now, it is reduced to one simple thing. And I hope that that will echo throughout the whole church, that the most important thing is that we actually know Jesus Christ more each day. We love Him. We understand what He's worth. And He becomes the light bulb that draws the heart of us towards Him. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? That this is the only thing that will make you feel alive spiritually this year, is that Jesus Christ becomes the great prize for which you're living. He Himself personally, and not anything else. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in prayer. I'm going to ask if Pastor Matt and our two elders can come forward to get ready with the communion elements. You know, I heard something on the radio this morning. It said that in a poll of 18 to 26-year-olds or something, that the vast majority of them when asked, do you feel like you're a grown-up? The vast majority said no. Maybe you're in that age range, 18 to 26, and if I ask you, are you a grown-up? You might say, well, no, not yet. I'm not ready to be a grown-up yet. I still want to be young. But the sad thing is spiritually for a lot of people, we never shed the old childish ways of thinking about life. You get more and more of everything, but you don't go deeper. And I think this morning what God wants to challenge us about is simply that. You might need to seriously re-examine the whole grading scale by which your life is operating on and realize that you're shooting at some of the wrong things. May your resolution this year be simple. By any means possible, I want to know Christ. And I want to gain him and have the righteousness that comes from faith and not from my works. I think it's right that we do communion, we observe communion on the first Sunday of the year, especially following these particular words of challenge. Because in communion, we remember that all of this talk is possible because Jesus Christ first reached down into that valley and grabbed onto our hands when we were falling. You know, meeting Jesus is supposed to change everything. If it hasn't, something is not right. Meeting Jesus is supposed to change everything. And for those who see in him who he really is, it really does change everything. And that's what we're asking. That as we take communion, we will be given a fresh remembrance of who Jesus Christ is and what he really has done for us. And it would change everything. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.